So yeah, last week we saw that Christians, they can disagree over a lot of different issues in the church that are not core, that are not essential to Christianity. But some of those smaller issues, I don't know how to put it, but can be really like bigger issues in some people's minds and personally to them as well. Uh, I grew up in a uh, particular tradition, a church, uh, and kind of the history of this church is you had to sign a contract in order to be a member of this church that you would not see movies, you would not smoke, uh, gamble, dance, or chew, and especially, and especially, you would not partake in alcohol consumption. No way on that, that's not happening. And uh, I, I can remember I was, I'm a, I went to Biola for my uh, undergrad and uh, my second master's, and I had to sign a contract that I would would not drink or smoke. Uh, and so that's how serious this university took, you know, abstinence from alcohol is that you could not enter unless you sign this contract saying you will not partake in alcohol. So yeah, Christians feel very strongly. Uh, some of them do about, you know, not drinking and smoking and dancing and chewing and go with the girls that, that do. Yeah, that's gonna, don't smoke and dance and chew and go with the girls that do is like an old kind of line people used to say. Kind of rhymes. Uh, and you know, it's not, by the way, I'm talking about this uh, and it's not lost on me. I just realized I was writing, I was like, I'm preaching this on Super Bowl Sunday. And like, other than St. Patrick's Day, there's no other time where a bunch of men gather into a bar, scream at screens, and, you know, get drunker than pirates and whalers. There's no other time in a, besides St. Patrick's Day. And now I'm preaching on this. So, I mean, I didn't plan this. The Lord did. Okay, I didn't like, okay, I'm gonna, you know, I didn't know. We're just preaching verse by verse. And this covers alcohol use and the weaker brother. So we had to kind of hop, skip to this subject, even though it's Rule Sunday. So, and so, yeah, we'll be asking this question. Does, does the Bible, what does it teach about alcohol? Uh, does the Bible teach that drinking any alcohol whatsoever is a sin? Now, you're, you're going to find some, I'm going to just give you some examples here, some quotes. You're going to find some pretty intense, heated, escalated disagreement about this issue of alcohol consumption. Just a few quotes here. Old time uh, preacher Billy Sunday once said, whiskey and beer are all right in their place, but their place is in hell. Wow. So Ron Burgundy would say, now that escalated quickly. I mean, that really got out of hand fast, right? Just poop right there. I mean, that, he really does not like alcohol, I, as in he compares it to like, like hell and the devil. Like this really weird and intense, you might say. But uh, ex-rocker turned Christian Alice Cooper, this is what he says. Drinking beer is easy. Trashing your hotel room is easy. But being a Christian, now that's a tough call. That's rebellion. So he kind of pits like, he puts like, I don't know, trashing your hotel. I've never even done that. But anyways, just in case you were curious, he puts like drinking on the same level as trashing your hotel room. So it's bad, it seems, in his mind. A celebrity, uh, Christian celebrity, I might say the greatest Christian celebrity. Better than Kirk Cameron. Now, I don't know, I'm stepping on toes, but Denzel Washington. People know that. I, I kind of love Denzel and his movies very much. But he says about alcohol, I made a commitment to completely cut out drinking and anything that might hamper me from getting my mind and body together. And the floodgates of goodness has opened up upon me spiritually and financially. Now, these, these people seem to really not like alcohol, right? That's kind of the gist I hope you're getting at this point. But you contrast this with the Protestant reformer, Martin Luther... <laughs> and uh, this quote is muy caliente, okay? He who loves not woman, wine, and song remains a fool 
his whole life long. <laughs> then my wife read that quote. She's like, did like Martin Luther have like multiple affairs? Like, was he like hitting up on women and stuff, going after women and everything? You know, calling people and, well, he didn't call, they, you know, they didn't have phones. You know what I mean? I'm like talking like a new person. No, okay. But yeah, no, he had one, one wife his entire life. I mean, he, he wasn't like, you know, some sort of, he had multiple women on or something. No, he, I, I think he's thinking here, if we interpret him in his historical context, he's referring to his wife, right? You know, not just, he likes just going after all women or something. Now, John Calvin says something more positive about alcohol in a much more controlled and a restrained way, something that Luther was not familiar with. There's like quotes online of Luther's funny quotes that he would say. And sometimes he says things with a lot of... Um, and color is very intense but calvin's much more restrained in his speech he says wine is god's special drink the purpose of good wine is to inspire us to a livelier sense of gratitude to god so yeah alcohol is something that is disputed in times past and it's disputed today even amongst very significant church leaders evangelical christians this is how tim challies describes the situation about on his blog this is what he says he says rc Sproul believes alcohol is a gift of the lord his dear friend john macarthur regards the consumption of alcohol as unbiblical their mutual friend john piper believes that even if drinking is not a sin it is very unwise three men three leaders three different perspectives so yeah and it's interesting as you look at studies and how christians drink and review drinking and refraining from drinking what they say it's a recent study done is that 41 percent of christians drink while 59 percent of christians do not drink at all so the majority of christians do not drink but 23 percent of christians believe that the bible teaches that christians should never drink and that drinking is sinful so, and uh, 6% says they're not sure. 71% of Christians say it's not sinful to have a drink of uh, alcohol. So, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a sensitive issue. And by the way, uh, 87, which this is good, a good clump of Christians agree on this. 87 would say, yeah, it's absolutely sinful for someone to get drunk. And the Bible condemns all alcohol abuse and addiction. So yeah, it's a sensitive issue in our day. It's a sensitive day in Paul's sensitive issue in Paul's day too. Because look at Romans fourteen twenty one. This is going to be in our text. It says it is it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So yeah, I mean, if you look at this verse and you ask me, Nate, is it always okay to drink? Then the answer has to be no. It's not always okay to drink. Now. That doesn't mean that there's certain times where we're free to drink and we're free to consume alcohol in moderation and in the right context. But there are times, according to Paul here, that we should not drink. And there's times where, where people uh, are certainly free to do that. And so let's see the context here to kind of get a bigger picture. Romans 14, 13 through 14, it says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in and in, in of itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. So yeah, he's talking, he's saying, yeah, I mean, he makes a comparison to meat and alcohol. Obviously, eating meat, I mean, they sacrificed animals in the Old Testament and they ate meat in the Old Testament. Eating meat is not intrinsically evil and yet meat and alcohol are put on the same level here. 
So, so there's nothing in and of itself evil with meat. And so there's nothing in itself, in and of itself evil with alcohol. It's not as if just a mere drinking of wine is just intrinsically evil. And so, yeah, and, and you know, people uh, today struggle with this. And some people say, well, you know, yeah, well, alcohol is evil. And so the reason why Paul is writing this is because wine in the first century, it was different than wine today. It didn't have any alcohol. I don't know, that just sounds like grape juice to me, right? I mean, if it's, I mean, wine, by the very nature of the Greek word, refers to alcohol. But some people say, yeah, well, you know, I don't know, you know, there was, it was, it was more, uh, it was more convoluted. And yeah, I mean, but beer is more convoluted than wine, and people just drink more of it if they want to get intoxicated. I mean, there's nothing there that proves anything, and that's, that's disputed historically. But yeah, no, wine meant wine. It didn't mean grape juice. Grape juice has no alcohol, whereas wine is fermented, it has alcohol. And that's what the Greek and Hebrews word, 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 Hebrew words mean. And so what you're going to see as we look through these passages is that People say, well, you know, it had no effect on people. But what we're going to see is the Bible actually says that the effects of wine and, and such, that, that those are actually good. So like what you, the, the, the sort of feeling a person gets when they're drinking wine, that that's not a bad thing in and of itself. Now, of course, it's not addressing alcohol abuse. We'll go into that. But Psalm 104, 14 through 15, this is what it says. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for a man to cultivate. This is what God is giving gifts to his creation. That's a context of the psalm. That he may bring forth food from the earth. And wine, this is given from God, and wine to gladden the heart of man. So wine gladdens the heart. I mean... I mean, grape juice doesn't necessarily always do that for you, right? Oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen the man's heart. These are gifts from God here. And so the effects of alcohol, it's not talking about some sort of like, you know, non-alcoholic beverage. The effects of alcohol is a gift that's designed to gladden our hearts. That's in its proper context used within reason and moderation. 1 Timothy 5.23 no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So he's saying use wine because of, you know, I mean, it's, it's not just water, but the alcohol helps his stomach uh, because of its effects that it has. And back in the days of the Bible, they had strong drinks that people had. They had, they had many different strong drinks. And Solomon says the effects of strong drinks should be taken, in some cases, should not be had. You should not drink under certain circumstances. And there are circumstances where drinking is recommended. Now, when I read this Bible verse, some people can't believe it's in the Bible, to be honest with you. But Proverbs 31, 4 through 7. Uh, it is not for kings, O oh, Lemuel, it's not for kings to drink wine or for rulers to take strong drinks. Strong drinks mean strong with alcohol, Right? He's not talking about extra sugar in the Welches or something, okay? Lest they drink and forget what has been decreed and pervert, like, Welches doesn't, doesn't make you forget either, right? I mean, not more than any other drink, right? And so, yeah, make good decisions, it says here for kings, so they don't forget what has been decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. And this is the part that really, uh, really bakes people's biscuit here, is verse 6. Give strong drink to one who is perishing, and wine to those in bitter distress. Let's just, I'm going to read that again so we can process this together, right? Give strong drink, alcohol, 
to the one who is perishing and wine to those who are in bitter distress. Let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Now, <laughs> you're like, well, the Bible's advocating alcoholism. No, it's not. It's not, you know, like, wow. So what'd you learn at church today? Alcoholism. You know, that's not what I, no, that's not what's going on here. So yeah, that just shows you they definitely had strong, strong drinks back there. And so, yeah, and what this is saying here is not that, well, if you're having a hard time, just drink it up, you know, start bringing out the tequila shots. That's not what this is saying. It's saying that a person for a momentary instant for a period of their time when they're going through something extremely painful like that that when they hear painful news and they're and they're suffering that they can take alcohol to ease their suffering that's not to say that okay let's just lean on alcohol all the time because that's addiction and the bible condemns addiction so this is not saying you can just be addicted to liquor here because you're going through a bad time trust me you can always make up something bad in your life to, to have an excuse to drink that's not what this is advocating here we need to be clear about that. And it says here that there is a time when not to drink, when you're making important decisions. If you're the president of the United States, probably not a good thing to get sloshed. Okay, it's not a good thing. If you're a, if you're a major world leader or a leader of, of, of anything of any significance, we're not to drink in any decision-making process because people make bad decisions when they drink sometimes. You I mean sometimes, jeez. Um, so yeah, it's not, this is not saying that we're, because the Bible teaches that we're not to lean on something as if we would lean on Jesus. And when people get addicted to alcohol, they're leaning on an idol rather than Christ. And so it's very important that we distinguish here someone momentarily suffering and partaking in alcohol from making that a habit every single night because they have trauma or whatever it is. That's not what that's doing because the Bible is against idolatry, against leaning on idols in order so that a, a person can find life. We're only to find life in Christ, not in idols. And so this is not advocating the, you know, kind of people have read this to be like, well, you just become an alcoholic. No, that's not what it's saying. And uh, it's, it, you know, some people say, well, you know, Nate, the, the Bible, the Bible is, uh, is I, I, can't, I, I can't believe that I can drink because even though the Bible might allow it, uh, and even in some cases say it's okay under certain circumstances, you know, if I drink beer, I mean, all those secular people, they drink beer at their, part, their parties, and, you know, they all, you know, all mess around and do terrible stuff, and they get drunk, and, you know, if I just drink any Bud Light, well, you wouldn't want to drink Bud Light, but, you know, I mean, you know, if you drink anything, right, just anything, it's going to hurt, it's going to hurt your witness. Like, people are like, oh, wow, I thought he was a Christian, but evidently, right, it's going to hurt your witness, and so that's why I don't drink, Nate, and so that's something I've heard very often. It's interesting to know that Jesus didn't really care to follow that advice. Last time I checked, Jesus was pretty perfect. Actually, he is perfect. He's 100% perfect. We are not. And so I think I'm going to trust Jesus, who is perfect, over some person's opinion of, of how they should live. And this is what it says. And this is Jesus you know, was accused of being a drunkard. And this shows that you, know, you can't live in fear of your enemies because if your enemies want to make up something about you, they'll make up something about you. You can't live in fear. This is what Luke 7, 33-35 says. This is Jesus talking. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine. And you say, oh, he has a demon, right? So he's not drinking on. So, oh, he's got, he's demon possessed. If they're going to find something on you, they're going to make it up. It doesn't matter, all right? Even though, but the son of man, that's referring to Jesus, has come eating and drinking. And I don't think it's just referring to grapes because you wouldn't get an a, um, accusation here of being a drunkard by Welch's, Okay. So the man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard. 
a friend of tax collectors and sinners, yet wisdom is justified by her children. So yeah, I mean, look, if someone wants to misrepresent or hurt your witness, they're going to find something. They're going to find something, okay? Did, you, no matter how small or benign it is, I, I've done the most benign things and people have not liked me and they always like interpret it in the worst way. So you can't live in constant fear of the would have, could have, should haves. And so this is, this is here saying that, yeah, Jesus part, partook in wine. Otherwise, they would have never generated that accusation that he was a glutton and a drunkard. So Jesus drank wine and Jesus is perfect. So I, th I don't think we should be wiser than God and make up our own rules here. Now, I say all of that, and I believe personally, I, I agree with Sproul, I, I think alcohol is a gift. But what I do, like any other gift, I, I think that that gift can be very, very easily abused and misused in society if not done properly. And I want to give this some perspective here because you're like, wow, Pastor Nate is just giving this ringing endorsement of alcohol on Sunday. This is unbelievable travesty, right? This gives us some perspective here that there are over 100 verses, it's, it's well over 100 verses, condemning alcohol abuse and what it does and how it ruins people's lives. Addiction, drunkenness, alcohol abuse, over 100 verses in the Bible. Depending on how you divide it up, 15 to 20 verses on anything positive. So if you're looking at the scales here, <laughs> it's, the Bible's very clear on warning how bad and deadly and awful the misuse of this gift is. How it, I, I have seen alcohol ruin lives, destroy families, hurt churches, and it hurts society. And yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a gift if the abuse can ruin everything and burn down everything in your life. Just like uh, other things like an adultery or an affair, it can ruin a life if misused. Any gift God gives us, food, right? That can be misused too. Alcohol, probably worse than food. Well, I don't know though, if you read this, uh, alcohol if used improperly leads to death. This is a, uh, according to the government website, the NIAAA, um, this is what they say. Each year in the United States, more than 95,000 people die from alcohol-related causes, making it the third leading preventable cause of death in our country. The first is tobacco, and second is poor diet and physical inactivity, which, yeah, refers to kind of sloth and gluttony there. So, yeah, I mean, any gift God can, gives us can be misused. In 2023, the number of alcohol-related deaths was 140,000. That's a lot. And the same website records that 15 million Americans plus are addicted to drinking, hooked on it, have an absolute addicted dependence on it. And what, what really, this one really took me for a loop. This just, was shocking to me because uh, this just strikes me as wild. But uh, the same website recorded that 25.8% of adult Americans over the age of 18 admitted in the past month to binge drinking. Like... Whoa, that's intense. Sadly, over 10,000 Americans die every year from drunk driving. So, yeah, alcohol is permitted as, and it's a gift, but you use this thing wrongly, things go sideways very, very quickly. It's, it can ruin your life. So we, I have to say that as, you know, this is not a ringing endorsement on all alcohol use. And so what we're going to see here in Romans 4, 14, 15 is it can, it can cause spiritual harm partaking in alcohol in the wrong context around a weaker brother. Verse 15, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love, but what you eat do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So here Paul is talking about a, a Gentile Christian who used to worship idols and now, uh, in this case, just like alcohol, I mean, he would, when, when he sees people eat meat, 
because the meat in the market at that time was actually, when you, when you partook of meat, I mean, it's a pretty good chance that that meat was sacrificed to an idol, a pagan god. And so they knew that eating that, and so they would get back into their pagan ways of thinking and believing in polytheism and all these false beliefs. And so they would go into their old way of living, and so it would stumble their faith if you were to eat meat in front of this person. So Paul says, yeah, watch out for the weaker brother. There's a stronger brother, weaker brother here. And yeah, the weaker brother cannot have meat because he's gonna, it's going to bring him back. It's going to associate negative, sinful things about his past life and paganism. And I think the alcohol, because that's kind of far removed from today, right? Like, I mean, last time I checked, him was like, hey, let's go eat meat sacrificed to idols. You know, I don't think that's really a problem today. You know, not really a concern here in Utah, like, you know, meat in the meat market. You know, I'm, I, you know. I'm pretty sure the meat there is not sacrificed to idols. I mean, last time I checked, never know, but... So, yeah, I think the alcohol thing makes it more contemporary and applicable today for us because alcoholics, let's be honest, they typically really struggle with enjoying alcohol in moderation. If they see you doing it, they'll want to join in. They'll rationalize, okay, we've all, we've all heard this, right? Just one more drink. Oh, just one drink. Oh, it'll just be one. It's not a big deal. And then that weaker brother is destroyed because that one drink leads to two drinks, leads to three drinks, leads to four drinks, and leads to uh, a, a spiritual ruin. It hurts them. And drunkenness is condemned all over the Bible. Drunkenness in the Bible is a real harm. It is a real issue. It's not something like, ah, oh, it's not a big deal. It's a small thing. No, it, it, it damages the person's walk with Christ. It's very practical for us as Christians and important to know, you know how to drink and how to be responsible because people always ask me, well, how do I know I've had too much? How do I know I'm just, I'm going over the limit? What's, what's kind of the scales here? How do I know? Because the Bible doesn't tell us. Well, the Bible gives us another, a number of markers to help us realize what is going beyond the limit of drinking here. The first marker of safe drinking is to be sober-minded. And to be clear in your thoughts. The Bible says this over and over again. Be sober-minded, be clear. You know, you were to have our wits about us. We're not to be like, you know, sloshing around intoxicated, you know, that kind of thing. And so for this reason, what scripture teaches us is to be always mindful and always be ready to give a reason for the hope that's within you. It says this in 1 Peter 3.15, but in your hearts, honor Christ at, in the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for you the reason, the hope that is in you. Yet do that, do it with gentleness and respect. And here's my point. You can't, you can't do that being blazed out of your mind. You can't, you can't offer a reason for the hope that's within you and offer the gospel and, and be able to defend your faith in, in a, any coherent or cohesive way if you're sloshed. And it's not going to help if your mind is all messed up or if you're not able to think clearly. So we're always ready to be doing this. And so that's why it's important for us to be our wits about us, be sober-minded. Another clear, uh, uh, you know, marker of drunkenness is walking stable, you know, normal, stable fashion and not vomiting. You'd think that'd be obvious, but, you know, some people, you know, they ask questions, right? But Isaiah 24:20 says this, the earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgressions lies heavy upon it and falls and will not rise again. So a drunken man is somebody who's not walking right. Okay. Isaiah 19.14, the Lord has mingled within her spirit confusion. So you're not thinking clearly. You're confused. Can't offer a reason for the hope that's within you. And they will make Egypt stagger in all of its deeds as a drunken man staggers in his vomiting or vomit. 
So yeah, you got to have your wits about you. Staggering, vomiting, and, and all those things. Not having a sober mind. All those things mean you, a person has gone too far. And I don't know. I mean, people weigh differently. I'm not going to like put out the drink equations up here for you. But uh, we can use common sense and wisdom and discretion. Now, the main issue of this text is that drinking in the wrong context can actually hurt somebody significantly in their walk with Christ. Now... Some have suggested the phrase, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. That means a complete loss of salvation. An eradication of one's grace in the Lord Jesus, that someone can lose their salvation and, by, by going down a difficult path. And, and so this is a Christian, a genuine Christian who's lost their salvation because Christ had died for them. Jesus dies for them, gives himself up for them. And so this person has lost salvation. The problem is that's not what the word destroy means here in context. That's not what Paul means at all. And the entire book of Romans let us, lets us know, you know through many, many different verses, but that if you trust, believe, and receive the gospel message that Jesus died on the cross for all of your sins, past, present, and future, and he lived in his perfect obedience and merited salvation for you by his perfect life, if you trust in that, nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus. Paul says in Romans 4, no sin could ever be counted against you. So we know from the whole argument in the book of Romans, the whole thing leading up, that a person can never, ever lose their salvation. Just, uh, just a, a previous chapters, uh, Romans 8, 38-39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sounds like nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus. So, yeah, when it says destroy the brother who uh, we're eating and drinking in front of, or drinking, say, liquor in front of that's, that's weak, it does not refer to the complete loss of salvation, but it means spiritual harm done to their walk. Because it can't mean the loss of salvation because Christ died for them. It says it, past tense. Jesus died for them. That happened 2,000 years ago in the past. It is finished. You can't annul the work that Jesus did if he did it for you in the past and he was nailed to the cross. All your sins were on Jesus. God has no more sins to count for you. Jesus died for them. So yeah, destroy means hurt, messed up, rather than like what we're thinking of here is like complete annihilation, no longer, you know. It's a, it's a metaphorical use of the word destroy as we use in English all the time like those watching the Super Bowl today you know you might be saying at the end of the day the Eagles really destroyed the Chiefs you might be saying that I mean, they're favored to win so I'm just I'm just pointing out facts all right just a facts man editor I'm not being biased okay and that doesn't mean the Chiefs won't score any points at all or cease to exist after the game like they just kind of like fade away in like a Thanos snap kind of thing like in Avengers or whatever you know no it just means that they're going to lose badly they're going to be hurt from the game you know that's what that means destroy and so we use destroy you know all the time the eagles destroy the chiefs there you go uh, it doesn't mean they cease to exist they're going to be hurt very badly they're going to lose badly okay it doesn't mean they're not going to you know, fade away so so yeah that's how it's used here of christians who uh who are drinking in front of these weaker brothers causing them to stumble in their faith not the loss of salvation not the loss of salvation and so we should value other christians because they're precious to jesus because he died for them he gave himself up for them specifically and so we should love and care for them too sacrificing for them as christ has first it says here in verse 16 so do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil 
And so, yeah, if, if alcohol, meat is not intrinsically evil, so if you do it in front of a weaker brother, they can view it as evil, but don't, don't allow that to happen. We want, I mean, these are gifts from God. We don't want someone speaking poorly of God's gifts. Verse 17, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace in the Holy Spirit. He brings us back to this issue of eating and meat and drinking alcohol again. And he's saying, yeah, that from a kingdom perspective, I mean, these are preferences. People can eat meat. They cannot eat meat. They can have alcohol or not. And so, like, if this bothers somebody, you know, we as Americans, we all, we're all about our rights. Like, we love to talk about it. It's my right to do this. Yeah, it's your right to eat meat. It's your right to drink alcohol. You know, and so he's saying, yeah, but we are to give up our rights for others, sacrifice for others. I mean, that's what God does for us, right? I mean, we, we don't always, it's not always good to act on your rights. The God, God, you know, I mean, I mean, God has the right to wipe us all out here. Now, thankfully, he's gracious and kind. And he does not, but he has the right to. You're like, oh, no, people are so good and wonderful. No, they're not. They're not. I mean, anybody who says that, anybody who says all people are great and wonderful, have never gone to a YouTube video and looked in the comments section. <laughs> I mean, those comments, I mean, I was like, oh, man, how do people believe in the goodness of mankind? Reading, I mean, there's, this guy didn't do anything wrong, and these people are just calling him names. I mean, those YouTube, I mean, I, I read that, and I'm like, I don't know, God, maybe we needed a flood here. This is pretty bad, you know? It's funny, like, people, people won't do that as much in person, but they love to put it on the internet, internet to be recorded forever and ever. It doesn't make any sense. But anyways, that's enough about that. But yeah, I mean, God doesn't, doesn't exert his right over us and wipe us out, even though we probably deserve it. And we do deserve it. Not probably. So, yeah, he doesn't do that, but he, instead he gives us, he goes above and beyond. He gives us love and grace and mercy, common grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. And so, yeah, we're not to be exerting our rights over others. If someone is going to be harmed by us drinking alcohol or anything, out of kindness and grace, we shouldn't exert our right over them, but we should lay down our swords, lay down our rights, and think about the weaker brother. Think about somebody else besides ourselves. Because if you think about these small preferences of clothing, eating, drinking, when you compare these things to the eternal kingdom of God that'll last for billions and billions of years, someone's eternal soul, that's way more important than like, you know, a Jack Daniels or whatever his people like. That's way more important um, than, than anything you could ever drink or consume. The kingdom of God should be our focus, not all about us and bringing pleasures to ourselves. That's not what it's about. So people get wrapped up on these small things that hurt others. People get obsessively focused about the smallest things while missing the big picture and Paul's thing is like hey it's, it's not about eating and drinking you're missing the big picture you're missing the eternal kingdom of God and what God is doing in your life and the lives of others it's not about just drinking and, and having your rights being called upon <laughs> now Paul dives deeper into this point here in Romans uh, 14 18-21 he writes whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men so then let us Pursue what makes for peace and mutual building. It's all about building up the other brother or sister in Christ. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everybody is indeed clean, but it is, in, it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is, not, it, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or anything that would cause your, your brother to stumble. So we're to be focused on eternity. Jesus sacrificed everything for us, so we should be willing to sacrifice for others. And, you know, 
it doesn't say you have to be like Captain Correction and say, well, you're wrong about alcohol. Did you read the Bible? Did you read Proverbs? You don't, no. The best way to change people is to show grace and sacrifice for them rather than being uh, Mr. Perfect Theology, Captain Correction, going around telling everybody's wrong about alcohol. It's better to lay down your arms, lay down your rights, and to show kindness and grace to them and show gentleness to them. That's what changes people is this kind of gospel-centered logic. Jesus did everything for us, and so before just correcting everybody, we should first lay down our rights for others in kindness and love and grace towards them. Romans 14, 22-23, it says, The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Right? You don't have to go around pointing fingers all the time. Just keep it between you and God, these, 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 uh, these side issues. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, but whoever doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. Eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Now, I can imagine a lot of people taking this thing wild. I've heard people take this principle wild. I mean, you can imagine, you know, a negligent husband saying, well, you know, honey, you know, uh, uh, you know taking out the trash and doing the dishes, I don't think that's going to proceed from faith today, so I don't want to sin. So I'm back, you know, taking out the trash. I, I'm feeling right now, honey, in my heart, that that's not really proceeding from faith right now, so I'm not going to take out the trash. I mean, you can imagine some lazy husband making up that stuff, right? It's not talking about all things, you know, like doing kind things and helping out your wife, or you're like, oh, I'm not going to help that, you know, homeless person or that person across the street. It's just, it's not really coming from faith today right now, so it's a sin, so let me just do whatever I... People could use this to justify anything they want if you want to run hog wild with this principle. This isn't talking about... It's, clear issues of sin and righteousness, but a matter of preference, secondary issues in food and eating. That's what it's about. So don't make the scope so broad that you're rationalizing crazy things now. So yeah, he's talking about someone who does not feel right about an action, and even though everybody around them is saying, it's, hey, it's thumbs up, it's good, but they don't feel right in their heart and their conscience that this is legit. They, they have issues with it, they have doubts about you know, uh, the action, and, and so they don't have faith about the action. They don't trust that, that it's the right thing. Their conscience is saying, no, don't, don't do that. And so... If they sin against their conscience, they're going to be sinning in other ways. It's going to be kind of a slow fade away. It's going to hurt them if they sin against their conscience in, in one area. It's going to pop out in another. And in, in a way uh, that puts it, this is kind of abstract, and I, I get it, but the way that Tim Keller puts it is very well in this kind of, uh, I'll give a couple examples here of what this would look like, you know, on kind of boots on the ground kind of thing. He says, I once knew a high school girl, it's a true story from a strict church background that taught it was sinful for a woman to wear makeup. But the peer pressure at school from the Christian girls raised in other churches led her to begin putting on makeup after leaving home in the morning and wiping it off before coming home. Now, though the Bible nowhere forbids makeup, the girl was violating her conscience as she did this. She was not convinced spiritually within herself that she was choosing popularity over faithfulness to God. That's what she was doing. She felt that in her heart, in her conscience, that she was saying, okay, popularity, thumbs up, God, lower level. As a result, she, she, she soon found herself much more open to real violations of God's will in the areas of sexuality. She had stumbled because her Christian friends had mocked her principles, misguided though they were. So yeah, if your heart and your conscience feels as if it's wrong, drinking beer watching a rated R movie or whatever it is, then it's much more easier down the line 
to violate your conscience. Again, once you, once you go one step, it's easy to go to the next step. And, you know, for instance, I'll just give another analogy. Like, you know, for instance, if you think seeing like rated R movies are, are bad and wrong, you know, in the Passion of the Christ, people don't, some people don't know this, is rated R due to violence. And so if I say, well, if I open it up to one rated R movie, why not the next? And then you're watching really horrible, evil, vile rated R movies. And so it kind of goes from you're letting go of one principle and you're opening up to others because in the person's mind, they have trouble processing that with their conscience and their soul. You know, we're not necessarily all logical robots. I mean, people, I've, I've done so much counseling in my time, and a lot of people think, well, I've already messed up here, so I might as well just go all the way. People, that is such a common human experience, is that, well, I screwed up here, just, just let, you know, just give up, kind of thing. Just, let's just, you know, send it up now, it doesn't even matter, you know, just, just compromise. I already messed up my moral principles here, just, just, you know, let's just rip out a party now, kind of thing. That's how people view it. And so, yeah, I mean, sin, something that is not sinful can lead us to sinful things, especially, and I think we forget that, you know, a lot of us here, not all, but have lived past sinful lives and done evil, wicked things. Um, and so when we were non-Christians, certain things, we have certain uh, mind associations with certain benign actions that we have negative and sinful associations with. And so that can, that can lead us back to our old lifestyle. And an example of this is a person who has negative or sinful associations playing cards, right? And because they were like, say, a gambling addict when they were uh, not a Christian. And so the guy plays, you know, Texas Hold'em for a few pennies. I mean, we're not talking about big bucks here. We're talking about pennies, all right? So it's not like he's doing something evil or wrong by playing Texas Hold'em with his friends with pennies. But you see, the guy used to be an unbeliever, unbeliever and a gambling addict. And so, like, even though he, he is, even though it's not wrong, his mind it goes back into that old association, that old way of thinking. And so, yeah, and he, and he could lead to deeper sin um, in that moment. And so, yeah, we've we got to be we got to be mindful of what we're doing to others and whether we're causing other Christians to violate their principles when it has to do with movies, dancing, cage fighting, celebrating Halloween, drinking or playing violent video games. I remember once when I was in South Carolina, I learned this lesson really fast. If you're a youth pastor, probably not a great thing to let the kids play Call of Duty found that out that that's not people have different ideas on that so now we play mario that's that's mario i, I feel like mario's pretty like that covers everybody's good with mario right and so yeah i think arguably a lot of those things are permissible people can play call i don't think they're in sin but you know if you flaunt it in front of others at a church event or a place where people are gathering for a church event you can really hurt somebody and so yeah i mean you're like well i don't but i wanted to have that I want to try that wine out or, you know, I wanted to play that game in front of that brother or sister. But the point is, it's a sacrifice. So it's, it's, it's inconvenient. I, I grant that Paul's advice here in Romans 14 is not the most convenient thing. But I think the act of inconvenience for another brother and sister is a sign of love and care, even in the small things for them. And I love the way. Elizabeth Elliot puts it. She says, the measure of our love is a measure of our willingness to be inconvenience. The measure of our love is a measure of our willingness to be inconvenience. And so this is, this is so true because, I mean, love is sacrifice in the Bible. That's what the love is. It's not a feeling or emotion. Love is sacrifice. And by the way, sacrifices, last time I checked, they're not convenient at all. And so, yeah. 
And the, the amazing truth of the gospel is there was nobody in the, in, there's nobody in the entire universe. There's nobody who exists more than God who has been more inconvenienced for you. That's the, that's the essence of the gospel message, right? Jesus lived the perfect life for you. To die for you. He lived and merited that, that perfect life. He sacrificed all of his life for you to merit and earn righteousness. So you could stand on the final day justified, vindicated, and righteous before God by his sacrifice. I mean, I hate to put it to you. Uh, to call the cross an inconvenience is an understatement. It was intense suffering. The God of the universe did this for you. Do you think it was convenient with Jesus being brutally whipped over and over again? No. What are they, they hammered the nails into his beautiful hands. Think that's convenient? No, that's intense suffering. Is it convenient to be dying and gasping on a cross and then taking the wrath of God in our place? That is not convenient. That is the greatest sacrifice anybody could ever make for you or for me. That is the greatest inconvenience and suffering in all of human history whom God himself has done in the person and work of Christ. He took hell in your place so that you will never go to hell. You will never be under God's judgment. By his stripes, we are healed and transformed. And it is that shining greatest act of love and inconvenience from Christ that allows me to be inconvenienced for other Christians, to find even joy in being inconvenienced for you. It is that infinite sacrifice that opens my heart wide open with gratitude so that I can sacrifice both in small ways and in big ways for others. I can lay down my arms, my rights, and my preferences because you know what? Jesus laid down not just that, but everything for me in my place. And it is that gospel message that is an encouragement to me to always sacrifice for the weaker brother who is struggling because Jesus first gave up everything and sacrificed for me first. Let us pray and give God in Christ's glory.